Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the Webby-nominated podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books has been sponsored by Himalaya, the best app for discovering, listening, and organizing podcasts. Himalaya was nice enough to reach out and make me an editor's choice, so now they're a sponsor. Check them out at Himalaya.com or in the App Store. I'm excited to be here today with Jack Fairweather, who is a former war reporter. He has covered Iraq, Afghanistan, and more. He is the author of A War of Choice and The Good War. His war coverage for the Daily Telegraph and the Washington Post earned him a British Press Award and an Overseas Press Club citation. His most recent book is The Volunteer, One Man, an Underground Army, and the Secret Mission to Destroy Auschwitz. He's a graduate of Oxford University and currently lives in Vermont with his wife and three daughters. Welcome to Jack. Hi, Zubi. Hi. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Sure, thanks for having me. I'm particularly excited because this is definitely a long book and so interesting. So I'm very excited to get like the inside scoop from you before, you know, <laughs> everyone delves into well, it themselves. I'm thrilled to share. I'm thrilled to share. Although I did realize that about a quarter of the book is footnotes at the end. So it's misleading how thick it is. <laughs> yes, indeed. It's a whole extra book inside. <laughs> so can you please tell listeners what The Volunteer is about and what inspired you to write it? So The Volunteer is this extraordinary story about a Polish underground operative who in 1940 took on a mission to infiltrate Auschwitz, raise a resistance cell inside the camp and start reporting on Nazi crimes. And incredibly, he succeeded in doing those things, sending out messages that reached the allies that were the first to inform the world about what was happening in Auschwitz. And perhaps even more amazing is the fact that you haven't you know, dear listener, perhaps heard of his story before now, because what happened at the end of the story, to cut forwards a little bit, is that he fought against the communist regime that was established after the Second World War, was captured and executed, and all trace of his wartime heroics in Auschwitz obliterated by the communist regime. They did not want anyone to know about Paletsky's story or that, that this great resistance fighter could be an inspiration to people in Poland or beyond. And it wasn't until the fall of the Iron Curtain and in the 1990s that the archives were opened up and finally Paletsky's story could start to be rediscovered in Poland and, and beyond. And so I was completely gobsmacked when I heard about Paletsky's story and I hadn't heard of it before. When I learned why, I felt a really strong sense that there had been a historical injustice and that, you know, we needed to know more about Paletsky. We needed a Paletsky in our lives, especially at this time. <laughs> yeah, so that was the inspiration for the research. And how did you find out about him? I, you heard through a friend that you had been reporting with and somewhere? Yeah, so I've, I've been a war reporter in Iraq and Afghanistan, and I was just transitioning out of the Middle East, uh, just beginning a family, in, in fact, when I met up with a, a fellow war reporter, also mulling over life outside war zones. He had just been to Auschwitz and had come across the story of a camp resistance. That was new to him. It was completely mind-blowing to me, because I think you know, when we most people think about Auschwitz, they think about what the camp became at its sort of 
Nadia, a place for the collection of mass murder of Europe's Jews. And they don't realize that there was this years in which the camp played a different role, slowly through a series of terrible experiments, led to the final solution. But I couldn't believe that there could be resistance in Auschwitz. And that got my antennas up. A year later, in 2012, one of Pilecki's reports was finally translated into English. And I sort of read that with, you know, utterly consumed my attention forth. And it's, he, he writes in this raw and incredible way. He also leaves lots of questions unanswered, like what happened to the intelligence he was risking his life to smuggle out of the camp. So that then led me into the research. So take me through how you did this research. You went from being literally like on the front lines and being a victim of a suicide bombing attempt and just like in it, you were just on the ground to now where, where, where did you find all this? Are you now suddenly in libraries or online sitting at your desk? Like paint the picture of how it, it went from you in like the military garb to, you know, Google, I guess. So I did a, made my first reporting trip to Poland in January 2016. And the first person that I knew I had to see was Pilecki's son. So he had two kids before he went into the camp, both who are alive today. And I knew I had to sort of, on some level, seek their permission to write about their dad. So I was... I had found a couple of researchers, one of whom happened to live in the same block as, as the son, Andre Pileski. I told her, as soon as she told me that, I told her, right, you're, you're hired. <laughs> and they set me up with this meeting. I was hugely nervous about, you know, we'd done a lot of sort of pre-gaming and planning as to how it would, how it would go. As it turned out, it was completely unnecessary because Andre was just so interested, engaged, and amazed that his dad's story had, you know, could attract outside interest. You know, we bonded straight away. And he warned me, though, I'm not sure what else you'll be able to find on my dad or where you should start looking. And so I sort of looked at him and said, Andre, I'm going to start with you because everything that you know about your dad is is kind of new in, in, in some ways. Any detail you give, can give me about what would motivate Pilecki to do such an incredible mission, I need. And so that began the first of hours of conversations with Andre. And he, uh, just to give you a sort of flavor of how incredibly engaged he was, he you know, took us to the home in outside Warsaw where he had sheltered with his mum and where Pilecki, after the war, would come and visit them. I wanted to follow in Pilecki's footsteps as much as possible. So that included things like recreating his escape from the camp. And Andre, it was really one of the most lovely moments of of the research, he sort of followed us as we tried to sort of follow the hundred miles of his escape route. We were, my researchers and I, leaving, you know, traveling at night, sleeping rough as as Pileski was. Andre was not, he is in his late 80s, but he would stay in hotels nearby and sort of meet us with a cup of tea and ask us how, how the journey was going. And one night we all stayed together um, in 
this Benedictine monastery where Palecki, he, he actually slightly broke the, the rule of the research, but he, he slept in a pile of leaves nearby. But in that monastery, he was given succor. The priest there gave him food and supplies. And what was one of the lovely things about taking this approach was that as we followed his escape route, we know a couple of the towns where he stayed. That's about it. We would meet families who had themselves sheltered Paletsky and the kids who had been in the home when Paletsky and his two fellow escapers came in, you know, would show up. They remembered those scenes and there was just this lovely mirroring in some ways that went on because, you know, we would you know, rock up and they would take us in and give us tea and offer us a little bit of shelter. And this sort of support and genuineness and sort of passion to the history felt, you know, felt like an echo of what Paletsky himself experienced and actually writes briefly about on his, as he traveled across Poland, that even though this was in 1943 at the height of the sort of Nazi racial experiment in Poland, when Nazis were trying to divide Poles between themselves, trying to exterminate the Jews, trying to you know round up people for forced labor people were paid to rat on each other even in that climate Paletsky found you know this incredible spirit of warmth and generosity that allowed him to get to the safe house and allowed him to write you know one of his reports about what was happening in the camp so that was a, a long <laughs> answer to your to, to your question but I found you know first of all was meeting the family Andre and Zofia, his sister, and then it was trying to retrace his his footsteps and, you know, wherever possible, combining the two. So, you know, incredibly, there were well over a dozen people who had known Paletsky, had fought with Paletsky, who were still alive when I began research in 2016. And most of them had not shared their stories before. It would be a dangerous thing to do in the communist time. And there's that sort of reticence that I think we all know about our grandparents' generation, about talking about their you know, exploits of the past. So, you know, they opened up to me. They opened up when I took them to the places where they had been with Paletsky. And on that first reporting trip, I went to the apartment where Paletsky began his mission. This was where, in September 1940, early on in the camp's existence, he had sat waiting to be captured in a German roundup that he had been informed would be sent to Auschwitz. And the a three-year-old boy who had been in the apartment when he was captured. And that three-year-old boy, now a 86-year-old man, who I brought back to that apartment, the first time he'd gone back in, in 80 years because the communists had taken it over at the end of the war and the rights of the family had you know, been lost. So we took him back and he, you know, these memories came back to him as we were in the room. One I just love so much because I think it really speaks to a special quality of Paletsky, that as the Germans were barging up the stairs, they could hear gunshots and shouts, and this is, you know, seconds before he was to be arrested, Paletsky noticed that the boy's teddy bear had fallen on the floor, and he reached up and handed it to him as the door was thrown open. And that really spoke to me about Paletsky's ability to reach out to others in moments of great stress, and that really became such a power of his in the 
in the camp time and again, you know, when you would think he would be thinking about his own survival and himself, he was doing the complete opposite. He was thinking about thinking about others. So I was curious what you think made Poletsky the type of person who would do this, right? You're, I guess you can be born the type of person to pick up a teddy bear, but to volunteer to go into Auschwitz, to try to get the message out to the whole world, you paint him as a very average Joe type of guy. Like he meets his wife painting scenery at the local you know, stage. He's just this guy who runs this huge, well, it sounded kind of like a plantation, but this giant thing that he inherits from his family. And the next thing you know, he's joining this resistance and trying to save the world. So I'm just wondering, maybe as a parent myself, like how do you think you instill values like this in your children or how do you think he got them? Uh, that's a great question and one I've also thought about. In some ways, it was one of the ways in which I first started to really approach Pletsky's character because when you think about you know, what he did, you sort of reach for these great epithets and ideas like heroism and bravery and patriotism, which I always found a little bit distancing or sort of hard to really see the, the man. And that's really what I wanted to, to get at. And it was actually through Andre's stories about Paletsky as a, as a dad that I began, that I really I began to identify with him, not, not least because we were the same age when Paletsky began his mission to the camp as when I began my research and we had two kids at the time, I, yeah, at least I did at the time. And I was listening to Andre talk about Paletsky's parenting techniques, which, you know, he was definitely, you know, in that sort of school of hard knocks style of parenting. He really, you know, he would chuck Andre into the pond and say, you know, get swimming. He would put Andre onto a big horse and say, you know, get riding. And his idea in some ways was for Andre to become a man of, you know, perhaps a military man, or certainly a, a man who sort of loved the some of the ceremonial aspects of military life as he did. Um, and it turned out that Andre was totally not into those sort of things at all. He was into the radio. He was looking to the future. In fact, he went on to become an, uh, an engineer and had absolutely no interest in sort of pageantry, horse riding, all of these things. Because that didn't stop Palensky trying to sort of engage with him on the subject matter. And so this sort of slightly sort of sweet and funny sort of push and pull began that I totally recognize, of course, from raising my my own daughters that, you know, you have to catch yourself every once in a while and say, hang on a minute, what am I, what am I pushing on them? What are they really getting out of this? Uh, what I felt that, um, that came through from Andre's stories, even though, you know, they were slightly, <laughs> you know, he was sort of talking about them in slightly sort of... Uh, Sort of negative way, or this sort of critiquing his approach was, of course, that Paletsky was just so engaged with their childhood, and and that really really different to so many men of that of that era. I mean, his wife was a school teacher, and so he would ride them in, you know, ride them into the village, the mile into the village, and then pick them up. And then when Maria had to work late. He would, you know, take them home, and he would. They'd be putting on fancy dress shows, and they would be like writing little poems that they would perform. When Maria came home, he was, he, you know, was just always engaged with them. It was quite eye-opening for me because I. It's very easy to be uh, not engaged. You know, I, that was a real lesson for me and how to be a better parent. 
was, you know, albeit, you know, sometimes you make some mistakes in, <laughs> in what you <laughs> think you're, you should be teaching your kids. But still, that act of reaching out and engaging is really what counts. And that's, of course, why, you know, to hear Andre and Zofia talk about their dads, you know, it's just, it's so, it's so moving to hear them. So while you were doing all your research, I mean, I feel like there has been a lot written and filmed about Auschwitz. Was there anything that you discovered, aside from this whole underground resistance movement, about what was going on at the camp that you really found surprising? Oh, well, let me just add one, one final thing, just to answer yes, your yes. earlier question. That engagement that he had with his kids, that is really, in some ways, the, the secret of how he went about making the underground in Auschwitz, you know, against all the odds, against everyone's expectations. It was this ability to engage, engage with others. And, you know, people who knew him, who had been recruited by him, described that they felt from him this sense of trust. And, you know, I think that was a very powerful force in the camp when everyone was being, you know, dehumanized and stripped of their dignity. And I think it's a powerful message for people today, you know, to realize just how important it is to trust people around you. And that's what, you know, Pilecki throwing Andre into the pond or popping on top of a horse was doing. He was trusting them. And in the camp, that's what he did. He would reach out to these broken and starving and demoralized prisoners and trust them with the secret of the underground, trust them with the secret of his own life, because, of course, they could have just turned around at any moment and shopped him to the local SS officer for a loaf of bread. Or, and incredibly, none ever did, because what he showed them through the act of trust was that something greater than themselves could endure in, in the camp. And... To take that to your next question, I mean, I think that, for me, was so stunning. You know, this place of victimhood, of suffering, uh, that it could also be a place for inspiration, sharing, cooperation, seems so surprising to me. And, you know, I confess that prior to coming across Pilecki's story, I hadn't sort of read a great amount about Auschwitz or the Holocaust. I knew it, of course, as everyone does, but I just struggled in a way to come to terms with what the camp was. I mean, you know, how do you get your head around, you know, a million people dying there? And Pilecki's story was such a sort of blaze of light through that dark time through the camp. He really drew me along with him throughout the research. And I think that's what I would say to your listeners, is that he really is such a startling new perspective on Auschwitz. You know, he shows that resistance is possible even in the darkest of times. And for me, that was really inspiring. And I hope that people can take away some sort of encouragement in, in our own struggles to try and follow in Pilecki's example. So how did you go back and forth, and this extends really to your career as a war reporter as well, how do you sort of toggle between the intensity of what you're covering and then your own 
life and like how do you put those feelings aside let's say you're on Pletsky's journey to Auschwitz one day or you're recreating the whole thing and then you have to flip a switch and sort of go back to not Auschwitz land I'm not saying that very well but how do you do that do you even know how you do that or it, it just you've always done that well the truth is I don't do it very well and there's no well I think you know as book writers, we understand that it's, you know, really engaging, incredible tasks, but it's also incredible. You don't stop ever thinking through on some level, the material and the the story. And, you know, my, I have struggled that you can't, especially, you know, for a story as consuming as Auschwitz and with someone as incredible as Palecki, I really struggle to sort of draw lines in my, in my own life. Um, you know, I live for the last two years in Charlotte, Vermont, but, you know, as I sometimes joke, I've been in 1940s Poland in actual, in actual fact. And there was actually a little bit of a surprise this winter, just as the first draft, I sent off the first draft to suddenly look around me in some ways and like get to take the kids skiing and see the lovely you know the, the joys of the Vermont landscape so um yes unfortunately I'm not the person to turn to for advice for how to <laughs> switch on and off you know the best thing is you know through that you know Pratsky's example of you know engaging with his kids and you know and just allowing yourself to focus on them so that's my that's my advice but um I suspect my wife may have a different take on that she's been like she's such been such an amazing support and I went back to Poland um two weeks ago to give my the talk I give about the book to the family and the friends and everyone who's supported the book. And I took my two oldest daughters with me. And it was just a lovely coming together of my two parallel lives, as it were. And to see Amelie, you know, get to meet Andre and shake hands and go around to his house for tea and cake. And to meet some of the uprisers who fought in the Warsaw Uprising, for them to sort of take my daughters around the streets where they fought and have them, you know, hear those stories was, I don't know, it was, it was really lovely. So Aww, so maybe I think so maybe, nice. during the, maybe during the book writing, there's no solution. But at the end, <laughs> to make sure you yeah. bring, bring the pieces together again. <laughs> <laughs> so what would you like to see happen to Pilecki's sort of place in history or what would you like to see happen to his story? Like, I, I, I'm sure this is going to, this must be a movie at some point, right? I mean, I can already like see the whole thing and I can't wait to sort of go see it. But like, what would you like people to know that everyone now has to know about this man? I think that, you know, Pilecki is, you know, clearly to my mind, and I hope to everyone who reads the book, one of the great heroes of World War II, and, you know, when you think about those heroes, people like Schindler and von Stauffenberg, who tried to assassinate Hitler, um, you know, his name should be a, house, a household name because he offers something, you know, an extraordinary new slant on what heroism is in World War II. And, you know, he fought against the Nazis from the very beginning with all of his passion, all of his soul and made incredible sacrifices 
to to do so. And he managed to do something truly amazing in Auschwitz. He step by step identified the final solution as it emerged before him. He put names on unprecedented evil that no one else had before. And I think in that act of witnessing, that act of naming, that's something really important for us nowadays to see. Like we are surrounded by, you know, atrocities and evil, you know, how do we engage with them? How do we find ways to talk about these actions, you know, just think about the migrant crisis, the terrible internment of separation of families down on the Mexican border. Like, how do we talk about that in a way that engages with the past, but, you know, recognizes that this is something new that we should all be getting up in arms about. There are Paletskis today out there who are trying to tell their stories, trying to raise awareness, trying to get us to engage. And, you know, we need to learn from Paletsky both how he was this incredible witness, but also how we didn't listen to him at the time and how we neglected his legacy for all these decades. So, you know, let Paletsky be an emblem for us of like what it takes to engage with the world around us, its darker sides and how you emerge from it with your courage and dignity intact. And, you know, the very profound message that we need to reach out and share with others and get the world up in arms in the face of great. I love that. So are you working on another book now that this one is being launched into the world? Do you have another topic you're tackling right uh, now? That's a great question. Right now, we are opening an international exhibition uh, about Paletsky, me and a couple of Polish institutes that um, will hopefully be a way to share some of the research that went into the book and share Paletsky's story in a different way. So I'm really excited about that. It's opening in Berlin next month with Angela Merkel and a whole host of dignitaries. And I, I hope it gets, you know, gets people to sort of see and experience Paletsky's story um, in a new way. Excellent. And do you have any advice to aspiring authors, people who might want to tackle something in history the way you did and really bring it to life in a vivid way the way you did in your book? I would say, you know, simply it's that it's, you know, such a wonderful opportunity to engage with the past. And I loved every minute of the research, plunging in feet first into it and trying to, to experience it as much of it as I could. So that would be if you can find a story that, you know, just gives you half a inkling uh, that there may be more there, whether it's a family story, whether it's a history book, just to, you know, to go for it. And I'm sorry that the research came to an end, which I think is <laughs> surreal. <laughs> you know, testament to, you know, how, you know, what a great experience it can be to engage with the past. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing your story and your passion for bringing this piece of history to light, which will really benefit everybody. So uh, thank you for being of service in, in all of your research as well. <laughs> uh, thank you for your great questions and pleasure to speak. No problem. Of course. Well, thanks for taking the time. Bye-bye. Bye for now. Thanks again to today's sponsor of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, Himalaya, the best app for discovering, listening, and organizing podcasts, Himalaya.com. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. 
Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. <laughs>